Hello, and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Your Insights. My name is Oliver, and I'm joined today by our senior reporter, Zachary Skidmore. Hello. And our renewable analyst, Capucine. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Zach. Today, we're going to go over some of the stories we missed during the Christmas break in our triumphant return for 2023. And Capucine's going to bring us up to date with the machinations happening in the French political system right now with the Renewable Energy Production Acceleration Bill. But first, we are going to talk about the news. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Very, very happy to be here. So the first piece of news we're going to focus on today is an announcement made by Macquarie Asset Management's Green Investment Group. It announced the sale of a 170 megawatt onshore wind farm portfolio to Valborn Infrastructure Partners. So the portfolio comprises three operational onshore wind farms, 180 megawatts, 147 megawatts, both in Norway, and 143 megawatt project in Sweden. Three wind farms are in the NO2 and SE3 Nord Pool zones. Yes, there have been many projects happening in the region, actually. Um, so has Scandinavia been a key focus of GIG as well? So GIG has made several investments into the onshore wind market since its formation in 2017. Scandinavia has been a very key market for them. It was actually their first European investment made in December 2017, which was made in Sweden, with a landmark corporate PPA-backed wind deal for the 650-megawatt Mark Biden onshore wind farm. The divestment of these assets represents three of its major onshore acquisitions over the past four years and may indicate a pivot away from Scandinavia. Thank you very much, Zach. What else has been going on? Greencroke Renewables has also announced an acquisition of a 22.5% stake in the 288-megawatt Botanic offshore wind farm. In addition, Greencroke also announced the finalisation of the acquisition of the 25-megawatt Taghart wind farm in Ireland and the 45-megawatt Konkanavia wind farm in Finland, both under a forward sale commitment. These acquisitions actually grew Greencoat's installed capacity to 1,228 megawatts in total. Wow, so that's quite significant. We've seen a lot of activity from Greencoat last year. What else have been up to? So Inspiration, covering the 2022 period, observed that Greencoat completed seven wind deals in total, the most notable being the acquisition of a 12.5% stake in the Horn C1 offshore wind farm. All of these acquisitions occurred within the European space, further bolstering the company's considerable wind portfolio. And looking towards the future, it's likely that they will continue along this path. There have also been some big moves happening around Germany and Norway with hydrogen, with the new deal announced by RWE and Equinor. Zach, can you give us some more detail? Yeah, so the two companies um, announced a memorandum of understanding, and this was early last week, and it was to transport blue and green hydrogen from Norway to Germany via hydrogen pipeline based on Equinor's ambition to produce hydrogen within the Norwegian region. So the cooperation has three main building blocks. So firstly, it's the construction of new gas power plants, which contribute to Germany's phase-out roadmap for coal. Equinor and RW will jointly own these um, power plants, which initially will be fueled with natural gas, and then gradually use hydrogen as fuel with the ambition to fully be run on hydrogen when the volumes and technology are available. The second building block is building the actual production facilities in Norway to produce low-carbon hydrogen from natural gas with CCS. More than 95% of the CO2 will be captured and stored safely and permanently under the seabed offshore in Norway. The export of the hydrogen will be done through a pipeline from Norway to Germany, 
and then there'll be joint development on offshore wind farms that will enable production of renewable hydrogen as a fuel for power and other industrial customers in the future. This is a really interesting deal from my point of view because, first of all, it represents, I think, a big sea change in German government policy as it relates to hydrogen. Because, first of all, this is not primarily a hydrogen project. It's starting off as a gas project, which will slowly move through carbon capture hydrogen, called blue hydrogen, hydrogen that's been produced by natural gas, and then steadily on to green hydrogen at some point in the future. Now, the reason this is significant is that the German government has so far had a very strong bias towards green hydrogen only. The idea of backing blue hydrogen projects has been... Um, a little bit taboo. Uh, And so the fact that they are on board with this, along with the Norwegian government, marks a move in the direction of a bit more practical application. So the ambition is to get two gigawatts equivalent production of blue hydrogen through this pipeline by uh, 2030, and moving up to then 10 gigawatts by 2038, and an unspecified amount of that to be from green hydrogen. Now, this could be seen as a bit of a blow to the German uh, green agenda, But the reason that this is so uh, significant, I suppose, is that Germany needs to find new sources of energy. The reliance of Germany on gas is actually huge, and most of that has traditionally come from Russia. So I suppose that's why Germany's in this mindset of looking for alternatives for its national energy supply. Yeah, definitely. It seems like it's filling a gap between when they have the opportunity to start developing green hydrogen. As part of the deal as well, it seems that both companies are already engaged in developing a project called Aquasector, which is a 300 megawatt offshore wind farm in the North Sea connected to offshore electrolyzers that produce green hydrogen. So the upscaling of that will actually support their production of green hydrogen, but that can only be expected in the next five to ten years. Yeah, I think that's right. Although we should probably mention that uh, it's not all... Uh, gone blue in Germany. There are still plenty of other green hydrogen works in the pipeline. For example, um, the Nell hydrogen project. I don't know if you uh, saw this one over Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this was a, a announcement that Nell are investing in two 60 megawatt electrolyzers. Uh, this is a project currently in the feed study stage with letters of intent in Germany. Their plan is to bolster up hydrogen production, green hydrogen production, that is, to four gigawatts by 2030. And the reason this one's uh, interesting is it's with um, the HH2E production company, which uh, listeners might remember had the backing of uh, London Stock Exchange listed Hydrogen One Capital. Um, so just moving on to a smaller community-based project, um, there was quite an interesting um, announcement made by Energy Vault Holdings and the Pacific Gas and Electric Company in the US, who announced a partnership to deploy and operate a 293 megawatt hour utility-scale battery plus green hydrogen long-duration energy storage system. Energy Vault will own, operate, and mainstay the system while providing dispatchable power under a long-term tolling agreement with PGNE. Additionally, Energy Vault may expand the system to over 700 megawatts hours. Yeah, and this is the largest battery plus green hydrogen system announced in the US so far. So could this prove a benchmark for community-based smart grid systems? So it very much could. The, the product is notable in how it will support the phase-out of mobile diesel generators, which are used to energise PG&E's um, microgrid during the broader grid outages. So if successful, it could really provide a test case towards more extensive community-based solutions across the US and 
wider field, which will support the development of a flexible and agile grid system. As we know, this is very, very important in terms of renewable deployment, as um, renewable energy is usually very um, intermittent in its production. So we need systems like this to assure that when there are ebbs and flows in production, we don't have to revert back to diesel generation. Displacing fossil fuels like diesel is one of the huge areas of uh, expansion of hydrogen. We recognised, in fact, SEOG Hydrogen Plant, the Hydrogen Award, for that very reason of being a community project that uh, displaced so much harmful diesel generation. And an interesting point on that as well is when we're looking at industrial sectors such as mining, which need to be functioning throughout the day on a 24-hour um, cycle, that if they rely only on renewable energy sources, say solar or wind, they will have to fill the gaps in with diesel generation. So the deployment of these systems in areas such as mines or any other industrial sectors which require 24-hour energy production could also prove effective. In other news that you may have missed over the Christmas break, uh, BP has been uh, working with the Dutch government in the Netherlands to back a uh, project in Rotterdam producing green hydrogen with developer HiCC, the hydrogen chemical company. Uh, that's for a 250-megawatt project. The H250 project in Rotterdam has been designated a project of common European interest. Similarly, HiCC has had an agreement with uh, GHG and Macquarie, as earlier mentioned, uh, this one being in relation to the Nubian project in Amsterdam. In other news, we've also seen some uh, interesting developments uh, from Greenland, which we don't look at very often, uh, as a potential exporter for hydrogen products, including ammonia. This new concept project from H2 Carrier are looking to develop up to 1.5 gigawatts of wind potential in Greenland for export into the ammonia market of Europe. Okay, finally, we'll have a little look at the digital infrastructure space. It's seen a continued large-scale investment since the turn of the year, and there's been a number of notable deals, including the US-based Vantage data centers entry into the UK market. The Ohio-headquartered company is looking to develop a 48-megawatt hyperscale data center in London, a project that's slated to cost upwards of $500 million. Additionally, Chinese multinational technology company Alibaba Group has announced plans to invest upwards of $1 billion in Turkey for a logistics hub at Istanbul's airport and a data centre near the city. Finally, technology infrastructure company Align Data Centres has announced its expansion into the Pacific Northwest with a 27-acre 108 megawatt data center campus in Hillsborough, Oregon. This kind of indicates that the digital infrastructure space is likely to see a continued investment throughout 2023. Thank you very much for the news update, Zach. Uh, we're now going to move on to looking at the trials and tribulations of Emmanuel Macron. I don't know if uh, many of our listeners are aware, but this week there was a large vote in the French Parliament uh, relating to uh, energy renewable infrastructure policy. And Capucine is here to dissect that for us now. So, Capucine, can you give us a, some outline and background about what's been going on? Yes, absolutely. So um, the French energy industry, as you may know, is a vibrant one. And as the world is turning to renewables, the French um, are willing to follow too. But it seems like people working in the renewable energy sector in France are getting frustrated as not enough is being done by the politicians to support this transition and, and public support uh, generally is low. And this so, is seen recently in the uh, targets for 2020 being missed? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, France is actually the only country in Europe that has missed its target. Um, and it actually is a poor score because it was supposed to reach 23% of uh, renewable energy in its energy mix. And it only achieved 19%. But it is quite bad considering that it actually started from 14%. Mm. Now, in the defence of France, a lot of that is nuclear and so much less carbon intensive than fossil fuel generation. But no, it's certainly not good for the renewable industry. So what's being proposed to fix this? Yes. Yeah, so to achieve better uh, renewable energy target, the French have voted on a new law that's called Loi pour l'accélération de la production d'énergie renouvelable. So in English, that would be <laughs> um, yeah, that would be a renewable energy production acceleration bill. Um, and it's been voted at the National Assembly on Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday, actually, on the 10th of January. But what's interesting is that the vote was very, very tight. We thought that Macron might lose this one earlier this week. Yeah, because actually, not many support came from the ecologists and the left-wing parties. What was their problem with the bill? Because surely that's it's supporting renewable energy, that sounds like something that they should be on board with. Yeah, in theory it should be. Uh, but all of these parties believe that the bill lacks ambition and reach. And actually there's a there's a point in the in the bill that could qualify renewable energy installations as imperative reasons for overriding public concerns. And so that could go in direct contradiction with biodiversity values, such as, for instance, building a wind turbine farm on um, protected areas in France. So we've got different parts of the uh, Green Coalition uh, fighting against each other for priority there. Um, so what does the bill actually do in terms of uh, the powers that it gives out? The main objective of the of the bill is actually to really accelerate the development and implementation of renewable energy projects in France. So particularly focusing on offshore wind and solar farms. Um, I think that's that's where um, the French are really kind of falling behind. So Macron is really trying to um, push this forward. So does this bill mean that fewer decisions are actually going to be in the hands of central government? So what the bill is actually doing is um, effectively giving more power, more uh, decision-making power to local authorities. So the idea behind that is that um, local authorities are going to be involved in the decision process of the location of a renewable energy project in France at some point in the development of these projects. And so what the bill is trying to do is try to um, get the discussion going from day one so that it would potentially come to a conclusion um, earlier in the development of the project. This is a really interesting approach if you contrast it to what's been happening in the UK recently. And we, before on this podcast, we've talked about how the UK government is trying to take some of the decision making, particularly for onshore wind farms, out of the hands of local authorities. Because as we've talked about before, the rules in the UK right now are such that there has been an effective ban on onshore wind because of how easy it is for um, local communities to raise concerns. And that almost always does happen. At least someone's not happy with a project. And so it sounds like the way that the French are trying to solve this problem is the opposite to how the uh, government in the UK is trying to solve it by moving power in different directions, centralising, decentralising. Wouldn't be the first time. No, it wouldn't. And it just sounds like shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. (laughs) 
a lot of stuff moving around. Nothing's really changing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think you're you completely right. And um, I think there's an explanation for this is actually renewable energy in France is really not something that drives public support. So not to generalize too much about the French population, but it seems that the support for renewable projects in France is even less than in the UK. And in the UK, it's not always great, particularly in rural communities. But how much in France are they actually talking about this? Is this a concern? Is this something that um, is a real hot topic right now? So that's an interesting question because it is it is an interesting, it, it kind of triggers an interesting debate in France. But at the same time, I think um, this week we haven't seen this bill in the news so much just because on the same day there was a bill passing to reform the French pension system and that drove way more attention uh, from the public than this. So yeah, it's not looking extremely great, uh, especially as um, an expert from the sector, um, someone who's French and who works um, in offshore wind told me that he just believed that this this vote was very political uh, but that yeah in practice it's not it's not very pragmatic i think developers in the industry are still very skeptical as as to whether this is going to really transform anything in the renewable energy sector in france and whether this is really going to help um, to transition away from fossil fuels in France. So there we are. Mr. Macron, if you're listening, Capucine has marked your homework and judged it not up to standard. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years in France and whether that policy support really will gather uh, any momentum there. And it's going to be really important for um, the rest of Europe as well. It's such a central economy. Yeah, I really hope that uh, France get to move on and and a bit faster than this because um, I think there's a lot of French people working in the sector but they tend to work on projects everywhere else in Europe just not in France. Thank you very much Capucine. That is more or less it for this podcast. We have um, a lot of projects in the pipeline for 2023. Guys what have you got uh, on your slate for coverage? So um, yesterday I actually had a really interesting conversation with um, Chris Willow, who's the head of floating wind development at the German multinational energy company RWE. So me and him had a quite a long-ranging conversation, which will be available as a Q&A hopefully next week, about the state of the market and what challenges and opportunities exist to the development of the commercial floating wind sector. One interesting tidbit from that conversation was the theme of evolution, not revolution. So... The idea that the floating wind sector is an evolution of offshore seabed fixed rather than a complete revolution, which is going to assist greatly in any supply chain issues and technological issues that may arise. I look forward to reading that interview. Yeah, it was actually a very interesting conversation that I was able to to sit in. um, And Chris mentioned that uh, there was going to be a Norwegian auction this year that is... um, that is going to prove key to the floating offshore wind sector in the European market. Um, and so I will be looking at that uh, in the near future and maybe also um, on how the oil and gas industries in Norway uh, can actually play a role into the development of this um, new sector of uh, offshore wind. And that feeds in very nicely with our WE's work that we were talking about at the top of the podcast with their pipeline to Germany. So, uh, 
other things you can look forward to in the coming weeks. We have our report, our hydrogen report on Australia in the pipeline. That should be out in the coming weeks. And also, I think you can look forward to some material on the website about small modular nuclear reactors. We're looking at the nuclear sector as a key part of our coverage for 2023. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for coming on, Zach. My pleasure. And thanks so much for your insight, Kevin. Thank you, Oliver. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.